Psalm 2 is a good passage for where we have been in Acts. It correlates with Acts to where we have done up to chapter 13 and where we've been, where we are, and where we're going, I guess. And it's about God controlling history. And that Psalm 2 is definitely a real hope for the Christian because God reigns. It says, uh, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Can you identify with that? <laughs> the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart, cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He'll speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for Me, I have installed My King upon Zion, My holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to Me, You are My Son, Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him! Exclamation point. That's good news. Good news all throughout the Old Testament. Right there in Psalm 2. It's a good passage. God controlling history finds fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Four of those verses, we were talking about him from the fire earlier. Four of those verses are in it. Right, right there, huh? Right there. Well, that, that shows victory, doesn't it? Um, in our passage tonight in, in, um, in Acts 13, I'm going to show how Paul presented Jesus Christ. And he presents him as the culmination, the very goal of... Um, of history, the very climax of history is Christ. All of history is really His story. It is about Christ, and this is Paul's first recorded sermon. Now he's been preaching a lot of sermons throughout the early years already, but this is the one we really get to see right offhand, and I think it's rather interesting to look at at what Paul was preaching. Now, there have been a lot of great movements involving preaching. Preaching is is important. That's what God uses to get out His Word and the Gospel. Uh, whenever it's made movements in, uh, in society, in the world, when it's progressed, it was because of powerful preaching, preaching of the Word of God. And of course, you, you think right here in, in Acts, we've seen that. And uh, of course, you look throughout church history and you have to think of Huss some of the pre-reformers and, of course, Luther and then Calvin and Zwingli and uh, all the Reformation guys. And um, I think it, it, you look at it in in some ways in, in, uh, in our last century or two, I think there's been a, a dearth in the life of the church as far as the, the gospel is concerned, the area of preaching the gospel. Um, 
we know that there were uh, there was a spirit-filled movement that God had in Jerusalem. And of course, Peter preached that. Then later on, we see um, Stephen preaching that great sermon. And then uh, Peter preaches again. And then later on, you see uh, Paul preaching here in chapter 13. They're spirit-filled men of God preaching uh, the powerful gospel. And we know that so far we've seen in um, moving up to chapter 13, God establishes Antioch as now kind of like a beachhead to go out and reach uh, the rest of the world. And we know that they first went out to Barnabas' area where he uh, had his home and where he'd come from in Cyprus. And, of course, there's some preaching there, but there was victory over Satan. As you remember, there was a man there that was uh, Elamus, a sorcerer, and um, God definitely took control there uh, in using Paul. And I believe the edge of fear was just taken away, removed right there in Cyprus before they go any further. Uh, You have to have uh, fear removed. And of course, the Gospel can do that. They had victory over Satan, and at the same time, there was a soul saved, Sergius Paulus, the, the governor of that Cyprus island, the governor of that whole land. and uh, So that's, that's good victory there. So they're pursuing now their very first missionary journey. We get to go back in history, and Acts presents history, but it's more than just history. It's, it's living history, and it's uh, full of the power of God's Spirit and His Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this evening, and thank You for Your faithful people who continue desire your word and uh, wanting to know you we want to sit at your feet and your Holy Spirit be our teacher and that we can uh, just be like we were there with those early missionaries as they presented the gospel as they presented how it was to be lived and uh, done and uh, may we be filled with courage as we're filled with your spirit And uh, just pray for your movement, your power in in our own lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, we uh, start off at verse 13 and kind of starts off with some um, difficulties. And, you know, things are going pretty smooth now. The proconsul believed. He saw everything that happened. He was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. And... Then he gets us into these locations where they're at. And there's some pretty tough spots of how and where and how they're going to get to places. How how are they going to do it? Um, Because they're going to be traveling in some uh, places that need to, to be. So at verse 13, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos, came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. So that we pick it up, verse 13. Paul and his company now go from Paphos. That's where they had been. That was the city in Cyprus. That was the capital city. So after their stay there, they move on. And so they came to Perga in Pamphylia, which meant they had to get in a boat, and they have to cross the Mediterranean as they go north now. And they land right there at the coast. 
and there's a little place there. It's an inland, and then you have this uh, Perga. Now, well, Pamphylia is a district in in this area. Pamphylia is it, and the thing is, is that it's just north of this area called Pisidia, uh, or, or Perga. I guess Pamphylia is, is a district, a large area called Pisidia, and then there's Pisidia and Antioch. And of course, that's really where we're we're heading here tonight as we make this journey. So you have Pamphylia, right? And Pisidia, you, you have two regions. And now the whole area is actually called Galatia. So you can take those regions and put them in this one area called Galatians. And of course, on the Sunday mornings, we've been doing Galatians. And that was a number of cities, a number of churches. And of course, they would get the letter and it was like a circular letter. And then it was sent to another church in Galatia and then another one. So that's the area now where Paul is going. And so you can imagine whenever he wrote Galatians after he had given them the gospel, he knew them quite well. He had been in that area. So Pisidia and Pamphylia, some other states, they make up Galatia. They make up, um, uh, and all these provinces make up a bigger area that would be called Asia Minor. So we're in that continent, that area. We're going to Asia Minor. And that's actually in the area that Paul came from, Paul of Tarsus. And so, uh, remember, where Barnabas was from was Cyprus. And, of course, that was his area. And now we're going into an area where Paul would might have been familiar with some of the places where he's going anyway. Um, so, uh, we narrow it down. We're in the Galatian section. And here we're heading to uh, to this place called the city in Antioch. And first, they go to Perga. Now, it says here that... Um, by the way, we'll come back to that. John left them. We'll come back to that. But they, they were at Paphos. They came to Perga in Pamphylia. That's a Galatian area. And uh, then John goes back to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, now, we don't really get any details on Perga. I mean, it just mentions it, and then they go on. Well, why doesn't it mention that Paul preaches here in Perga? We don't know, really. It's not there, is it? Um, why does it say he just departed from Perga and went to Antioch? And that's not the same Antioch. This is uh, this is another Antioch, the city in Antioch. It's very likely, though, because we have the book of Galatians, that what was going on at that time, Paul had been very sick in um, in this area while he was at Perga. And we kind of get that indication in Galatians 4.13. This is the way it could have been. We, we definitely know in the Galatian area when he first came there, he, he had been sick. Uh, he says, But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time, and that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus Himself. So he's preaching the gospel to them all the time while he's sick, and who knows? He, you know, he could be coughing and uh, all the things that come along with the sickness, and yet they bore through that to hear that gospel. Now, that's pretty amazing, you know, that they would uh, still even want to be around him. And we don't know what that sickness was, but he was he was very sick. It's, in other words, when I first came to Galatia, I was really sick. In the verse in that next verse, in my trial and my trouble, which was in my flesh, is physical. 
you didn't despise me. You know, you didn't you didn't reject me. Even though he was sick, they welcomed him. So that's that's a good thing. Uh, anything else is mere conjecture, but William Ramsey, because of a lot of the different kind of sicknesses they had there and at that historical time, he uh, he says it could have possibly been malaria. And if he has malaria, he can have temperatures go up and down. Sometimes those temperatures can go all the way up to 106, which is near death. Uh, that is really serious. So that's about all we get out of Perga. And then they arrive at Pisidian Antioch. Now, there are a lot of things happening in that space where it says they arrived. If you're just reading along, it's okay, now they're Pisidian Antioch. But what you have to do is really start looking at the area where they have been and where they are going, what they're going to have to do to reach Pisidian Antioch. And you'd think, well, that's just a little short cart ride, you know, maybe a a train ride, right? I don't know if I have anything up here. I did have it, but um, I was going to give you some pictures of some of the mountains. The TVs are off. Okay. Um, Give me just a minute. Sorry for the delay here. type up Taurus Mountains and you're going to think of Ford Taurus at <laughs> least I did I did the Taurus Mountains and guess what it did Just gave you a Ford pair of Taurus okay. Taurus Pistols oh yeah Eldon you know about Taurus Pistols or are you a rifle man I can't hear you. Taurus firearms. <laughs> Taurus. Yeah. Yeah. This is uh, this is just kind of one of the pictures of uh, the mountains that they're going to be going through. Three. What's that? Dark mountain. Oh, you must be enjoying He's going to try to just describe it for us. It's a heavy yeah, storm moving. Get an imagination. I thought that takes some skill. Is it up yet? No, it's just computer. There it is. All right. So anyway, that picture. Looks like jagged. Yeah, that's the whole idea. It's a very rugged, jagged, mountainous area. And yeah, I was trying to go to some other ones that they had. And... I need to be better prepared next time. Sorry about that. All right. There you go. Well, they actually had some pictures somewhere here. There they go. Get the idea. But they had some pictures of uh, Antioch Pisidian. There's your mom. I'm out of there. Sorry. 
If I'd have it on a CD or something, have it already plugged up there. There we go. After they got through the mountains, then they got to go through that area. <laughs> well, um, well, they went by boat to the um, uh, to, to um, Perga, and then from Perga, then to uh, Pisidian Antioch. Then you have the mountains. Yeah, they first had to go by boat, and now they're going to do the mountains uh, to get there. It's rugged. It's a, it's a land that would not be one of those places you'd really like to go through. And according to the scale on my map, it's about 80 miles. That's, that's right. That's about what it is. And usually think 80 miles, okay, not so bad. But in a mountainous area, 80 miles. You know, and you've done those switchbacks and all that before. <laughs> that could take you forever. That's with cars. But you know, it's like this. This right here, and it passes over for a reason. But because it, it gets moving on here, Luke doesn't go into the details. But I think it's it's interesting to note um, that just don't take it for granted when these guys travel that uh, they just had a, a you know a highway that they walked on and just went you know a paved route all the way through. Uh, what a fantastic job they did to get uh, up to these heights uh, and uh, over and around these Taurus Mountains. wasn't easy at all. They're jagged, they're rugged, they're cliff-like mountainous areas. Then there are two treacherous rivers also in that area that were um, just could be crazy, you know, just to even try to get across. Um, so you're up these dizzy heights. Up on cliffs sometimes. Has anybody ever watched that Bear Grylls? G R Y L L S. Some of the things that he does, you know, he gets up in these high areas. As a matter of fact, he'll take some movie star, somebody that they know that doesn't do that stuff, and he'll have them going straight down the mountain <laughs> or a big cliff. They're going, whoa! I don't think I could ever do that. Thirty-six hundred feet above sea level. Yeah. So is that possible? And they came from th- that boat, which is the sea, and now they're they're going to do that in a short amount of time, in uh, 80 miles. And you know that that's a pretty steep climb in a, in a short ways. Uh, there was a guy by the name of Alexander the Great. Remember him? And uh, of course, he wrote about that area, and it was very difficult to, to get across. There are canyons there. I mean, it's it's a horrible place to be traveling just for the fun of it. And, of course, taking your armies up through there, it had to be uh, very difficult, very difficult, very tough. But some of the toughest parts of those mountains, if you could get through that, uh, there's another part that's hard, and it's because there are people that live up there, and they uh, are very brutal, they're lawless, and they're tribesmen, and they would confiscate, they would steal, they would slaughter And so it would be very dangerous not only by your travels, but then by the people that that lived there. And they'd hide in the caves, in the cracks and the seams there of the the mountains, and whenever they'd get in a position, they they would attack. And so that's the kind of things that they were doing at that time. What a journey. It was a journey that Paul never forgot. You would never forget this kind of journey. Matter of fact, look in 2 Corinthians 11:26. We don't know if this is what this is, but I think it could definitely be one of the places 
that he would be writing about 2 Corinthians 11.26. Three times, uh, verse 25, you know, beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day and I've spent in the deep. Here we go. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, Sound familiar? Dangers from my countrymen. Dangers from the Gentiles. Dangers in the city. Dangers in the wilderness. Dangers on the sea. Dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's a daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Oh, yeah. Sounds like an inviting thing to be a part of. And so it is, delivering the Gospel. It's not easy. And uh, I think that is a rather, uh, I think, jarring aspect of what it is to deliver the Gospel, what it what it took. And, yeah, it is. Uh, it can be. It can be dangerous. It can be life-threatening. Uh, there are uh, definitely dangers everywhere, as as he mentioned there. Uh, not to mention uh, the spiritual battles that go on, right? So, difficult places they dealt with. So, I took a little more time there than maybe uh, uh, I should have. Uh, but I think it, it's interesting as we think about what's really going on as he's traveling. Um, difficult people. One of them's Mark. Mark let him down. Mark let him and Barnabas down. Um, there are probably different re- could be different reasons. Um, one of the reasons that commentators say is uh, you have Barnabas, and John Mark is uh, close to him, and he sees Paul kind of more or less dominating. Things change. At first, it's Barnabas and Paul, and then it starts changing to remember this. Then Paul and Barnabas, and so it's Paul and company. Um, so there might have been a second reason. He's looking ahead and looking at those Taurus mountains. Would you want to do that? Hmm. Crossing that. I. You know. Maybe. Uh, He's not quite the hardy soul as he thought he might have been, and he chickens out. Good possibility. There's a third chance is that the romance of the missionary work isn't what he thought it was going to be. When when we really see true mission work, what's really happening out there, whether it be in some foreign land or just in dark places, it's hard, and it's not as... Uh, I can say, um, yeah, yeah, glorious. Um, sometimes people get it in their mind. Oh, the traveling, and oh, it'd be nice to be able to, you know, to tell people the gospel, and everything's real easy. But then you start finding out people who've who've been to places. Uh, they find out about water, for instance. We take it for granted here. Food is is a lot different. Definitely the travel we hear about the roads are uh, just outright horrible, and 
matter of fact, to be traveling on mud uh, a lot of times, and the vehicles you have are not much. If you have vehicles, if you can even get to the place with vehicles, and then going to places where people have never heard the gospel and they don't speak your same language, and uh, yeah, it's it's a hard thing, but it's a good thing. It's a, yeah, you got to be able to uh, bring forth the message, and of course, here we go. This is this is what it's about. It's bringing forth the message. They get there, and this is what's more important than that traveling, though. Yeah, Barb. One of the young men in our church just recently got back from a mission trip in South Sudan, and they lived out in the bush. They didn't have the luxury of going back to hotels at the end of the day. They lived out in the bush in tents and their area was on guard 24-7 from mm-hmm. rebels and stuff like that. This was a right. college group that went from his college. That's, uh, I think it should be um, humbling. Uh, I think about that and I'm going, wow, I can't, even, I can't even imagine. I can't compare to that kind of ministry. I've just... Uh, haven't been in that kind of situation, and um, boy, it's like there's a cost. It's a real cost. And they were in the bush for I think twelve days. <coughs> for permission, but yeah, no convenience. Probably be good for all of us. Get a real reality, right? Yeah. Well, anyway, Paul's finally there. And he is at a big city now. And that's where he winds up. That's where he always wants to go because it spreads out from there then. And he goes to where? Sabbath day? Where's he go? Synagogue. There are reasons for that. Uh, for one thing, you already have a built-in crowd. And they are religious people. They want to hear religious things. So why not? The second reason probably is because they're, they're receptive. Because he always starts off with the Old Testament. He starts off with things they're familiar with. Fertile ground there. No problem. You know, he has a, an audience that's just ready to take this in. Yeah, they're going, yeah, yeah, say it, brother. And um, so anyway, he initially, he's received very well. Um, so, you know, he doesn't start off with the name Jesus right off the bat. Uh, that would have uh, shut him off fast, probably. Yeah, there's a third reason, and and it's um, well, I, I think you know he is seen as a rabbi, or they they hear him maybe speak or or whatever. Um, and he also loves Israel. And of course, in Romans nine and ten, he says, "Oh, my heart's desire is for them," you know, and I you know that I I be um, cursed. That if if they could just at least hear the gospel, I'll I'll trade that. You know, he's willing to do whatever it is to get that gospel out. Well, here's what happens at the synagogue. What's the first thing that goes on? They get there, they do the Shema. The Shema. It's like, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is Lord. Right? He's one Lord. That's right. He's one Lord. So that's the first thing they do. The second thing they do that's on their bulletin every Sabbath is the prayers are offered right after the Shema. And then right after that, Scripture is read and they will start off with a portion out of the Pentateuch. 
Now, they would read through the Bible in seven years. Uh, through seven years, they would have had that read from uh, those Sabbaths. Um, through the Bible, right? J. Vernon McGee, through the Bible. Remember his show? <laughs> um, every every day, you know, the Scripture there. Well, he gets through it in five years, I think. But he gets to do it every day, right? Of course, he's not with us anymore, but his tapes still are. Well, following that, they would have the prophets read. And so they would have the reading of the law. That's the Pentateuch and the, the prophets. And then after that, they would have the instruction and teaching. And this is where Paul comes in. They've done all of this stuff, and now it's time to have uh, some instruction on it. And somehow, through God's sovereignty, they pick him to teach. Now, how long? Maybe a few minutes, maybe a few hours. We don't know if somebody had talked with him before and they realized that, hey, this man really knows some things. Maybe he even wore his clothes of a rabbi that would help get him in. When they'd have a rabbi to sit in, well, certainly they'll get that guy and they spot him out and and have him to teach. So there are some reasons probably why uh, he was able to do it. He definitely seemed very competent to them. So we see that uh, uh, it says, after the reading of the Law and the Prophets, there's your Pentateuch and the Prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Well, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand. He gets their attention now. So it's his time. Actually, I guess they more or less in this in this occasion, whoever wants to comment on this can go ahead. Paul then takes the opportunity. What an opportunity that he sees, right? And... Um, He's getting ready to to preach the sermon. And um, he says, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. Now there would be the Jews, the Israelites, Jewish people, men of Israel, and you who fear God. Could even be some Gentiles in there. They're they're the ones that are called the God-fearers. And um, so, you know, maybe they're not necessarily converted Gentiles into Jews. Some could have been, but then there are other ones that... uh, they have been led up to a certain point. And then he says this, and I think this is what it's all about. Um, he begins his message with God. Why not? That's, that is the one who you want to start with. The God of this people Israel. And hey, they're all ears. And there are two main characters in this sermon. God, God the Father, and Jesus. I think the Holy Spirit definitely is a main character in here behind the scenes too because the power is coming out there. Uh, but God's the background character here and God is just going to dominate in uh, this whole message. Uh, for example, look in verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. And then in... Verse 18, for a period of about 40 years, He put up with them in the wilderness. Um, verse 19, when He had destroyed seven nations of the land of Canaan. Still talking about God, right? Verse 20, after these things, He gave them judges. Um, verse 21, then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul. 
And verse 22, after He had removed Him, He raised up David. Verse 23, every verse, right? From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel. Um, we'll, we'll skip. Go, go to verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. You see what's happening here? We can go on and on, couldn't we? Just to save some time. Um, God fulfilled all this. God's the main character. It's all about God. Now, if Jesus is to be presented, and that's what this is going to do, He's he's going to have to be presented by somebody that they have respect for. And who do they have respect above all? The God of Israel. And that's how he introduces them. They like that. So the first part of the sermon, he just lays the foundation of the God of Israel and all that he's doing. (laughs) And so he lays it out. Jesus is the culmination of history. And that's where... Paul is leading to. Um, where's history going? Where's man come from? Where's history? What's happening? You know, what are we here for? What are we all about? Where are we going? What does this life mean? That's exactly where Paul's heading here. What are we here for? Is it true that history goes nowhere? And that's what a lot of atheists really point to. It's really heading nowhere. There was the uh, no rhyme, no reason. Uh, a guy by the name of Dostoevsky says, if there is no God, there is no purpose. If there is no purpose, then everything is permitted. And if everything is permitted, we're a disaster. But there is purpose. History is going somewhere. And every Jew in the synagogue there had any kind of belief in, in the Word there, when Paul spoke, they knew there was a purpose. Jewish history was headed for the time of the Messiah. So they, they did. They, they knew there was a purpose. There's no doubt about that. They know that. They know there is a messianic kingdom. That's what, that's what they're looking for. And so every Jew is waiting for that. They're waiting and waiting. Here's Paul. And it ultimately results in this. Fellowship with God and giving God glory. God wants to restore fellowship with man. And that's what He's doing. He's endeavoring to bring men to Him, men and women, (laughs) mankind, to fellowship and then for them to give Him glory. And so that's where it's all going. That's where it's all headed. We know that. But how many people of the world have any idea what's going on, where we've been and where we're headed? So here he starts with history. He started, and he starts with the history as far as the Jew is concerned, something they they recognize. And he talks about God's selection of the fathers. This people, Israel, chose our fathers. He chose that little nation when they were nothing. They were nothing, literally. And of course, out of Abraham and, and so on and so forth. And those fathers are Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and on. God chose those particular men, that line to go through. So, um, that's where he starts with. And he starts showing a lot of God's character here. Um, 
the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers, made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. He multiplied them. And with an uplifted arm, He led them out from it. With an uplifted arm. There's the powerful God. Uh, He's a God that protects the mighty power, the mighty arm of God. When it it, uh, says the right hand of God or the arm of God, we think of uh, His power. The uplifted arm. God was not only powerful, but He was also very, very caring for them. Why is that? Because they are the key to history. Because he was going somewhere with his history. And he's using them to be a part of it. God cared for them. Of course, we know his deliverance out of Egypt and the Red Sea and everything. Um, For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. 40 years. Now, that means in, in, uh, in the Hebrew... He bore with them. He put up with their conduct. He tolerated them. Uh, But it's actually more than tolerate. They had lousy conduct, didn't they? But the Hebrew also can take in another word, and there's, there's a spelling there in the Hebrew, and I think the words can can work together, though. It also can mean to nourish, though, while he is putting up with them or tolerating them, he's also doing what? He's nourishing them. He's taking care of them. Like a mother with a colicky baby. Yeah. yeah. She has to put up with it, but she, has, you know, she nourishes while she's tolerating. <laughs> Good illustration. Because he saw far past that all the uh, the trouble that, that that baby can bring, you know, the crying and everything yeah. around. Good illustration. So God bore them as as a woman would, uh, a mother with her baby, uh, or maybe a father uh, with his son. So there's an emphasis there. He he didn't just tolerate them, but uh, he he cares for them. And of course, he he gives them a place. Um, verse 19: When he destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan. He distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. A whole lot of other nations. You go to Deuteronomy 7.1, you can read them there. You can read those seven nations. They're all listed. God had to destroy all of them. Every one of them had to destroy them. And therefore, that's why a lot of people don't like the God of the Old Testament because He just wipes out nations like that. But it's amazing how many years He allowed them to hang around to do the evil, evil, wicked things that they did. So, think of the the Jebusites. It wasn't until the seventh year of David's reign that the Jebusites were set aside. So God gave each of the tribes their own areas as they came into that land. The tribes had their land. And then He keeps going through history here. Verse 20, after these things, He gave them judges. He gave them judges. And I think that's pretty good. That means they were deliverers, really. Um, They weren't kings. They didn't really reign 
over the land like a king did, or they weren't like presidents, but they were deliverers who rose up at particular times when every man did what was right in his own eyes, if you remember, and that was a disaster. So he had raised them up and uh, for a time, and there were special purposes, to, and he preserved them. Although then they would go right back down the tubes again, and they would get you know where all their their crops would be stripped and be raided by the enemy, and and then God would bring them a judge and raise them up again for another time. He constantly did that. Boy, that, that's a patient God, isn't it? Mm. So we've seen His power, we've seen His care, we've seen His faithfulness, we see His deliverers. They're all pointing to the deliverer. Then you have Samuel the prophet. And he was the last of the bunch of the, of the judges. He, uh, he was a judge, but yet he was also a prophet. He was a judge and a prophet, in a way. And then, he doesn't hang on that very long, he moves right on to kings. We get out of the judges area. Then they ask for a king. God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. A special king is coming along, but first they get the first king. A tale of two kings here. Saul, then David. So they desired a king. Everybody's got a king. We want a king. They went to Samuel. First Samuel 8.5 They said, Samuel, your sons are all departed. They're all, they're all shot. They're no good. We don't want them. You know, Samuel's been kind of a great leader, a great man of God, but he didn't do a good job fathering. So Samuel had really blown it with his kids, but uh, they say, we want a king. Everybody has a king, so God responded to their desires. In the plan of history, He used that. And I think it's interesting that the desire of the people doesn't necessarily change the purpose of God. And so God plans all that into His history. And it's great because it's going to point to the ultimate King, the Messiah. So they had a great way there um, when they wanted a king to choose one. You know what their way was to choose? Whoever's the tallest and the most handsome. That's the one we want. (laughs) That's what they got. They got the tall, handsome King Saul. But he was not the kind of a king that God wanted. God wanted a king that would obey His will. Saul wouldn't. Saul was very self-willed. He was self-directed, self-designed, everything about self. And so we notice that God removes him. It says in verse 22, after he had removed him, what happened? Well, God removed Saul. And we know about this uh, kind of the the Saul's in battle. He winds up... uh, more or less killing himself there, you know, with the Philistines. Uh, could refer to his death there, but I think it also goes all the way back to a removal in terms of his kingship, even though he is a king for 40 years. Because you remember that God told him to wipe out uh, all the ox and the sheep, the valuables, King Agag and the people. And King Agag is supposed to be killed. Slaughter him to pieces. Well, he didn't do it. Let him stay alive. Kept uh, oxen, sheep. And uh, that's not what God had asked him to do. And so he anointed whom? 
David. He anointed him while Saul was still king. Saul is king, but David is anointed. He's going to be a shepherd for quite some time, but at the same time, even before Saul was dead, he had been anointed by, of course, Samuel. God had done that. Um, Saul knew about that. He knew that he was his time was going to be finished. He had to be removed. In no uncertain terms, he'd gotten his message from Samuel, from God. And First um, Samuel 13, Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God. Went against God's straight up word. And I'm going to take it through David and we'll stop here. We're, we're about done. Verse 22, After he had removed him, he raised up David. You see where Paul's going on this? He's cutting right down the line. Goes to that kingly line. Now, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. And I think that's amazing. God chooses the right man. God runs history. God chooses people. God can go around the wrong man and through the right one. He says, you want Saul, you can have him. And then he, then God more or less chooses his own. He says, he's a man after God's own heart. The thing is, we know that David had sin. But David also is seen repenting. David is seen as a king who was obedient. And that's really what God desired. Obedience from the heart. And um, he repents of his sin. Saul didn't repent of his sin. Saul didn't even acknowledge his sin, let alone repent. And so in a king, uh, as in terms of ruling, when he went into battle, God told him what to do, and David did it. And he was a victor, wasn't he? He was a champion. But it wasn't so with Saul. So from a standpoint of a king, he was a man after God's own heart. And from a standpoint of even the personal aspect, he was too. And uh, that gets us up to the promise. And we'll stop there. What a cliffhanger. Wow. No kidding. <laughs> I got a comment. Yeah. Uh, verse uh, 17. And when he had destroyed seven nations of land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. What if Fox News had been there with their cameras and used this carnage for 450 years? Wow. Would somebody like the United States intervene? Now, what I'm, what I'm comparing that to is what's happening now in that part of the world. People are dying by the yeah. hundreds of thousands, or thousands anyway, right. and, and slaughtered by supposedly enemies. Uh, yeah. So uh, what I want to see is what's God doing now? <laughs> you know, is this, I'm sure it is, it's all part of His plan somewhere or other. Yep. Uh, no doubt. And why should, is our intervention part of His plan, or should we... Stay out of it and let them fight with each other till somebody comes out the winner, even though a hundred thousand get killed. I mean, here they killed and took a period of four hundred and fifty years. Four hundred and fifty years. That was a bloody war. 
for a long period of time. Yeah. That's a we that's read that quite and say, a oh, that's God's purpose. Well, <laughs> what's God's purpose today? Uh, I, I don't know. I wish we could kind of see. We know He's cutting through this. We well, know He's know doing it. Purpose, but it how's He doing it? Yeah. Where it's going? But yeah. Uh, Seems like a madhouse out there. Right. Yeah. But somewhere or other, God's in charge. But again, same thing that He does. He calls up people to respond to that. You know, small sections of people to do, like I just said, I know of nothing else, but, you know, the face of death that brings people to the truth. You know, you know, you know nothing else about war. But the Lord wants that person to understand who he is. It's definitely how he draws people, you know, to his truth, too. So many things interwoven in this whole story, isn't there? There's individuals, then there's nations, and he has every aspect in control. Well, if he did that then, and I believe he did, then he's doing it now. In exactly the same way. Why Why wouldn't he? Why? How do we understand it? You know, we have a hard time trying to understand what's going on. It's easy to look back and read this and you can say, because, you know, yeah. It's on the page, you know, oh, he destroyed seven nations. Well, God says and said he did it and at this point we're sitting there we don't can't see all the factors of who's playing what, you know, how he's directing people's past to do what they do and like that. for those people for their salvation yeah, I mean, for all we know, he could be wanting the end of Iraq and the rise of this ISIS group might be the way he's doing that. He's going to house. You know, our situation's a little different, though. Uh, is it? It is. He had a nation. A whole nation was his people. He's got a nation now. He has people in every nation now. Yeah. And another thing in the Old Testament, I, God is big on justice. And he calls us to speak up and do what we can. And there are women and children and people being slaughtered by their own people. Hmm. Out of these seven nations, there's a lot of women and children there that got killed. I don't know how they got killed, but I saw pictures on the news the other night of uh, 200 bodies laying out where the, and they were lining up more and shooting them. Hmm. Yeah, I've seen some of these. Um... The lines were clear cut back then. You know, Israel was his people. I mean, not everyone in Israel was Israel. That's what, what Scripture tells us. Right. But from the outside looking at it that small nation was his people and everybody outside that were not his people unless they had come in as proselytes and stuff now his elector everywhere he doesn't have a single nation but would you have understood that back then if you were a family as part of one of these nations living out in the desert somewhere Hmm. You wouldn't have understood that big picture. I guess, I guess hmm. so. I guess I'm always thinking the thought on that is that he tells us that by his own creation that man is being aware that he does exist. 